uh, our English Bible. I think it is true to say that in the whole of human history, no book has been translated more times than the Bible. Beginning with the main ancient uh, translations, which we have spoken about, uh, the one into Greek that we call the Septuagint, I've put it here on the table. There were a number of Greek versions first uh, in the uh, centuries immediately before Christ was born, and then they resolved themselves into this official uh, version that we now call the Septuagint version, but we've already talked about that. And then, of course, the, another one of the ancient versions was the Syriac uh, version of the Bible that we call the Peshitta. Uh, this is another very old version indeed. It was a translation into Syriac in the early centuries um, of the Christian era. And then, of course, we have um, the Latin uh, versions, the old Latin versions, which finally resolve themselves into what we call the Latin Vulgate. The word Vulgate means popular or common. And it was um, uh, Jeremy's version in 382 AD uh, that came to be called the Vulgate and later on was finally and officially recognized by the Roman Catholic Church as their official version to this day of the scriptures. Of course, it is the Latin Vulgate that is important to us this evening. Not so much the Greek version, not so much the Syriac version, but the Latin Vulgate. Because it was this that became the basis for any translation in part or whole of the Bible in Europe, in whatever part of Europe uh, it was. These translations, these three main ancient translations of the Bible, grew very quickly in number in the early centuries of this era. We have many very interesting versions that we're not going to talk about this evening. We have a number of Coptic versions in different Coptic dialects, which are very interesting. Uh, that's uh, uh, Egypt, uh, the ancient Christians of Egypt. Uh, the Coptic version. We have a Georgian version, which is very ancient, uh, or translation. We have an Armenian translation. We have an Ethiopic uh, translation. We have a Slavonic translation. And we have a Gothic uh, translation. All these different ones uh, belong to the early centuries of this era. When Luther translated... Um, the Bible into German, he had, in the 16th century, some 15 translations in front of him, which he compared when he made his historic translation into German. By 1600, there were 40 translations. By 1700, there were 52 translations. By 1938, there were 1,000 translations of the Bible. 
and by 1958 there were 1,100 uh, translations of the, of the entire Bible. It's not uh, fragments, but the entire. Over here I have put one or two books that may help you. This is a particularly interesting book. It's a book called The Book of a Thousand Tongues and it gives you samples of all the thousand translations in 1938 that there were of the Bible. And then, of course, here is a book by the Wycliffe translators, um, which also gives you a rather interesting little selection of uh, modern and old translations of the verse, Go ye into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Anyway, I leave it there for you can look at it afterwards. Now, the number is still growing. And it is an amazing fact that rapidly now more and more languages um, are, are um, being used to uh, bring God's word to uh, people. Uh, why do we speak about this question of translation? Well, of course, our own English Bible is a translation. And sometimes uh, English Christians forget that. You remember the story of the old lady who, when she heard the minister reading from the revised version, was exceedingly indignant and stormed up to him afterwards to berate him for using the authorised version. And when he said that the revised version was very accurate, her retort was that the authorised version was good enough for St. Paul and it was good enough for her. <laughs> And it is true that there are still a number of English Christians who seem to think that the authorised version was in fact the original that was in uh, Paul's hand, that was the sort of language he wrote. Uh, in fact, our English Bible is a translation, and that's why we're talking about translations to begin with this evening. Sometimes, some of the languages used for translating the Bible, presented very real difficulties indeed. For example, how do you describe a palm tree to an Eskimo? How do you in fact speak of a desert to an Eskimo? How do you, how do you speak of a crocodile or a pomegranate? Now, these things are not so silly as you may think. Uh, <laughs> Uh, crocodiles mentioned only once or twice, but pomegranates figure quite a bit uh, in certain parts of the Bible. These are the kind of difficulties that have um, uh, been presented to translators of the Bible. Our own English version, in fact, our own English translators had a lot of difficulty botanically, as I think some botanists here will probably point out. And in the end, they just gave up. And instead of trying even to uh, give us what they knew in some cases to be the correct um, thing, they simply settled on some well-known English flower or tree or fruit and translated it as such. Now this, in fact, has had to happen in a number of languages. For instance, the Eskimo doesn't know what a lamb is. And therefore the whole teaching of the Bible from beginning to end about the Lamb of God has no meaning to him at all. So do you know what the translators 
after much prayer, have, uh, have translated in the Eskimo version of the scriptures, they've called the Lord Jesus the seal pup of God. And that means everything to the Eskimo. He understands quite clearly what a seal pup is, and it means and makes sense. It is, in fact, another remarkable evidence of God's sovereign oversight concerning the, this, uh, bi uh, this volume that we call the Bible, that its entire contents have been put faithfully into the language of the people all over this globe. It is a remarkable fact when you think of some of the portions in Ephesians and Colossians and Romans and Hebrews that have been faithfully put into the language languages of people, language that they can understand all over this world. It is a feat. It's no mean feat to have uh, done this. And it's, uh, it is, in fact, uh, an evidence of the oversight of God uh, in bringing this book in its entirety to the peoples of the world. It is a very wonderful thing that John said, surely prophetically, well we know it was prophetically, that in the end of all nations and kindreds and tongues and peoples there should come a great innumerable redeemed multitude. He little realised, I think just at that time, how the very book he himself was in the process of writing was going to be put into every tongue uh, that the world knows. Another point we ought to make before we actually look at the history of our English Bible is that um, the, the neither chapter nor verse divisions were any part of the original. Again, this is another point which many Christians overlook. They think the chapters, um, that um, the prophets actually marked off the chapters and uh, probably marked off the verses as well. And that both chapters and verses are as inspired as the text. And this, of course, is very wide of the mark altogether. When these um, messages were given, there were no chapters, even when they were written down. There were no chapters, and there were no uh, verses at all. They were written, as we know, a book um, <coughs> of rather lengthier um, divisions. Um, in fact, the division into verses which we have can be traced to the early centuries of this era. Uh, the Masoretes fixed the um, verse division of the Old Testament in the year 900 AD. That's very late. Uh, and this divides the Old Testament into 23,100 verses. Exactly. The division into chapters was much later and was the work of a cardinal in the 13th century. Um, both the chapter and the verse divisions together first appeared in what we call the Bomberg Bible, the, Bo the Bomberg's Great Bible of 1547-1548. So that was the first time the chapters and, and verses that you and I know appeared in the Bible together. Uh, the first English uh, Bible that had both chapter and verse division that we know was the Geneva Bible of 1560. 
So those before that had, some of them had chapter divisions, and none of them had verse uh, divisions. That was the first time that what we now know, and some scholars, as you can see, and we shall talk about this next week in the revised version, and the modern versions are felt to be a scourge, um, the, um, the verses and chapters that you and I know uh, were no part, in fact, of the original. Well, now, what can we say about the um, actual um, uh, history of the English Bible? Well, first, right back in the beginning, we have already mentioned the Latin Vulgate of Jeremy, which in fact was a very fine translation um, of the Bible into Latin. Jeremy was a very fine scholar. Indeed, he was the outstanding scholar amongst the church fathers. We have to jump over quite a period of time before we come to the first um, uh, occurrence of uh, the scriptures in the language of the English or British people. Uh, it was in the uh, 8th century, 700 roughly, that we find the first actual occurrences of English scripture. Uh, it began, in fact, with um, uh, a gentleman called Cadman, uh, who was a labourer in a monastery in the north of England. And um, he was asked to go to a party, so the story goes, and he was frightened to death that he would be asked to sing in the party for fun. So he went and hid himself in a barn, and there he fell asleep. And whilst he was asleep, an angel came to him and told him to sing. And he began to sing, and when he sang in his vision or dream, he began to sing a story about the creation of the world. Now, this man could neither read nor write. Uh, and uh, when he woke up, what he had sung, uh, both the words, the, the, the ballad form of it, and the tune, were in his mind. And he began to sing, and he caused quite a sensation, quite as great as any uh, pop singer today, I might say. And people from all over the place began to come and listen to Cadman singing the scriptures. For... Without ever having read the scripture, he began to sing in ballad form the stories of the Bible. Now, the lady who was in charge of this um, uh, monastery and convent, an abbess, um, was most interested, a lady called Hilda, was most interested in Cadman and asked him to become a monk. She felt that God had gifted him very definitely. By the way, this is... Um, uh, it, these are early Christians and true believers, they're not just nominal uh, Christians. And she asked him if uh, he would, as it were, join her staff, uh, which he did. And uh, she and other uh, of the uh, inmates uh, began to teach him um, uh, what the Bible said. And uh, they began to translate from the Latin to uh, uh, the English and um, put it into his mind, and he in turn turned it into ballad form and began to sing it. Now, this, in fact, we believe, was the beginning of the English Bible. For the first time, for the first time as far as we know, uh, the Bible was beginning to be spoken in a paraphrased form 
in the language of the people. This was followed in about 700 AD by a version of the Psalms by Aldhelm, Bishop of Sherborne. Uh, and followed also, of course, you all, I suppose, have heard of the Venerable Bede. Uh, he is accredited with a, um, a translation of the Gospel of John, where he died almost on the last word of translation. Uh, after that, there are a number of other fragments that belong to this era. After that, King Alfred, that I suppose you all know as the one who burnt the uh, cakes, uh, was in fact far more famous uh, for his very enlightened government. And um, he was a man who loved the Lord. I don't know if you ever knew that. King Alfred really loved the Lord. He, he was immersed in his Bible. And he pref prefixed to the laws of the realm the Ten Commandments which he himself translated out of the Latin Vulgate into English, English as it was then spoken. He also translated those chapters of Exodus 21 to 23 that later on the Puritans were to call the Book of the Covenant. So it is rather remarkable, really, that those are the first examples we have of the Bible in English. Um, in the Norman era, you know, after 1066 and all that, um, the, the, these translations came to an end uh, for the simple fact that the Normans were French and all the ruling and educated classes both spoke, wrote and read French. The result was there was no more translation of the Bible into the people, into the language of the common people. It was in the 14th century that more English versions appeared. They were versions of the Psalms, of the book of Revelation, of Paul's letters, of Acts, and of what we call the general letters, James and Jude and Peter and so on. And all these led up to the most important date uh, the first real milestone in the story of the English Bible, which was John Wycliffe's version of the Bible in 1388. Um, in fact, this was the first complete translation into English of the entire Bible but it was from the Latin Vulgate. Uh, Wycliffe, who I think most of you will remember from your history lessons at school, was one of the most remarkable and enlightened men uh, of his day, was the leader of a large group that have come to be called Lollards. They were, in fact, God's people, that's all. And they were nicknamed the Lollards. Um, now, Wycliffe um, had one great passion, and that was to put the Bible into the language of the people. And he took the Latin Vulgate and he translated it into English. We can call it the pioneer version of the English Bible, even though it was a translation of a translation. There were, in fact, two Wycliffeite versions of the Bible, neither being the work personally of Wycliffe, Wycliffe himself.
He, he was the inspirer of both versions, but in fact he didn't personally translate um, these uh, versions. The first was produced in his lifetime in 1384, uh, and it was a very literal translation of the Latin Vulgate, so literal that it kept to the Latin order, and even in cases used very Latinized English, and therefore it didn't have the popular appeal uh, that it should have had. Um, the second appeared after he had died in 1388 and was a very careful revision of the first made by John Purvey, who was Wycliffe's secretary, and it was made in a much more natural English. In fact, it was the natural English spoken by the common people. Now, this was an absolute milestone in the story of the Bible. For the first time now, the people had the entire Bible in their own language. John Purvey was a remarkable man. And um, you'll have to read up this if you're interested yourself. Uh, he was a, a most delightful man, both especially in the preface that he wrote to this 1388 uh, edition of Wycliffe's Bible, where he calls himself uh, in uh, one place um, uh, a poor scribbler. And in another place he refers to himself as that coward sinful caitiff. Um, he, he was a, a most humble man with no um, feeling about his own uh, uh, reputation as a translator. In fact, he was no mean translator, for we believe it is to him that we owe the Englishing of the uh, Wycliffe uh, Bible. The whole work was regarded with grave suspicion uh, by many people in high places uh, in the country, and bitterly opposed by the church. Um, in the House of Lords, a bill was introduced immediately to try and suppress this version of the Bible. Uh, but John of Gaunt stood up, and, and through his influence, the bill was rejected, and the people continued to have the Bible in their own language. In 1408, however, the church ruled that no one, no one, should translate any text of scripture whatsoever into English, nor should any such be read publicly or privately by anyone on pain of excommunication. Now, of course, excommunication didn't just mean that you were put outside of the church and uh, you could go on with everything else. It meant, it meant everything. You lost your job, you lost your reputation, you lost your means of uh, livelihood. Everything was gone for you. And this led to the most terrible persecution. Now, this is not in our, um, uh, the course of the story tonight, but if you want to, you can read George Fox's Book of Martyrs, you can read other books upstairs, you can read some of the histories of the church in this country. And it was this period that so many people were burnt at the stake uh, simply because they were discovered reading the Bible in English. For no other reason, many of them were burnt at the stake uh, for this reason, that their spirit may be saved, though their body be destroyed.
that was Roman Catholic teaching at that time. Nevertheless, thank God, the initial breakthrough had taken place and things would never be the same again for this country. For the first time, the Bible had been put into English and the people had started to read it. And nothing now could stop the onward move uh, of the English Bible. The next date we come to, um, which is the next great milestone in the story of the English Bible, is, is William Tyndale. William Tyndale's version of uh, the New Testament. This was the first printed edition of the New Testament in English, and it appeared in 1525. Up to this point, all copies of the Bible, in whatever they were, Latin or English, had to be copied by hand. This was the first printed version uh, ever to be made. It was also the first translation ever to be made from the Greek original. So this version of William Tyndale marks another great milestone in the story of the English Bible. Printing had been invented, and this was going to be the means by which God's word was going to be disseminated throughout the, the nation, and indeed throughout the world. Um, and secondly, someone now was not making a translation of a translation, but was going right back as far as he could to the original text of, the, of God's word, and was putting it into the language of the people. This was a major breakthrough for God, uh, and for the interests of his kingdom. He, of course, translated it from the Greek text in the light of the Latin Vulgate and in the light of Luther's German translation. It was bitterly opposed by the church. Tunstall, Bishop of London, who I'm quite sure will not be discovered in heaven, bought up the whole first edition and publicly burnt it at St. Paul's Cross. This only inflamed the people's appetite to read this forbidden book the more, and secondly, it provided William Tyndale with a large sum of money with which to produce a much larger edition. In fact, I thought I'd read to you a very amusing and true account of what happened, written, a contemporary account written of, uh, by the gentleman who, um, uh, who was uh, uh, in the deal. <coughs> the bishop, thinking that he had God by the toe, when indeed he had, as after he thought, the devil by the fist, said, Gentle Master Packington, Gentle Master Packington was a merchant uh, who was in fact uh, um, dealing with these uh, scriptures, with this edition, of the New Testament. Do your diligence and get them, and with all thy heart I will pay for them, whatsoever they cost you, for the books are erroneous and naughty, and I intend surely to destroy them all and to burn them at Paul's cross. Augustine Packington came to William Tyndale and said, William, I know thou art a poor man and hast a heap of New Testaments and books by thee, for the which thou hast both endangered thy friends and beggared thyself, and I have now gotten thee a merchant with which with ready money shall dispatch thee of all that thou hast, if you think it so profitable for yourself. Who is the merchant, said Tyndale, 
The Bishop of London, said Packington. Oh, that's because he will burn them, said Tyndale. Yea, marry, quoth Packington. I am the gladder, said Tyndale, for these two benefits shall come thereof. I shall get money of him for these books to bring myself out of debt, and the whole world shall cry out upon the burning of God's word. He's a very wise man. And the overplus of the money that shall remain to me shall make me more studious to correct the said New Testament and so newly to imprint the same once again. <laughs> and I trust the second will much better like you than ever did the first. And so forward went the bargain. The bishop had the books, Packington had the thanks, and Tyndale had the money. <laughs> now that's a contemporary version of what exactly happened. They weren't without their humour in those days. Tyndale was, in fact, a most remarkable Christian. His supreme passion was to place God's word in the hands of the ordinary man in his own language. Perhaps even he little realised the power and the influence such a course of action was to have. In many ways, spiritually, it was like the first um, atom bomb that was dropped at Hiroshima. It ushered in a new era. I wonder sometimes whether Tyndale realised it. He was once very angered in a discussion that he had at a certain place by someone who said that he thought the Pope's laws were far more important than God's laws. And uh, Tyndale was so angry that in a moment of anger, he retorted, Before long, I mean to see that every boy that driveth a plough shall, shall know more about God's word than you do. Well, he didn't actually live to see that uh, uh, fulfilled. But in fact, that is exactly what was to happen. Uh, for no other reason than his passion for putting God's word into the language of the people, he was hounded all his life. He had to leave his home. He had to leave his livelihood. He was a very distinguished scholar. He had to leave Oxford and Cambridge and um, had to flee to the continent where he lived for quite most of his life in Germany and in the lowlands. And his whole life, if only you will read it, take the bother to read it, is one of the most moving stories in the annals of church history. He never was able to live comfortably for long. He was always on the move, always being spied upon, always being tracked. Every person he had to watch, his conversation, he had to uh, whisper. Uh, he was a man who, who really was martyred uh, in spirit long before he was martyred in body. It was in Germany, in fact, that his first edition of the English New Testament was printed, as also the Pentateuch in 1930, which was the first time that any translation ever been made direct from the Hebrew text. And in 1931, his, uh, he, he printed the book of Jonah, again a direct translation from the Hebrew text. Um, and he also translated other parts of the Old Testament. We're not absolutely sure how much he did translate, but they were translated from the Hebrew. He was martyred 
near Brussels in 1536, being first strangled and then burnt at the stake. Such was the price of the English Bible. And yet in the last year in which he spent in prison, his life was so peerlessly beautiful and sincere that both his, his jailer and the jailer's daughter came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, his last words before he was strangled were, was, were a prayer uh, that the Lord would open the King of England's eyes. Uh, Tyndale's simplicity, his freshness and vitality have passed into the authorised version. His very fine sense of English style has provided, in fact, the standard for all succeeding versions. Of course, not all of his more idiomatic English passed into the authorised version. I might say we can be quite glad about that. For instance, in Genesis 39 and verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph and he was a lucky fellow. And again, he translated in Exodus 15 and verse 4, he translated Pharaoh's captains as Pharaoh's jolly captains. And also in Exodus 15 and verse 26, he spoke of the Lord that healeth thee, he translated as the Lord thy surgeon. Possibly a, a good text uh, we might need sometimes, but that's the way he did it. Those, of course, more quaint uh, translations, may have not been so quaint in that at that time, did not pass into the authorised version. To him, we owe some of the phrases that are embedded in all our spirits. For instance, this beautiful one, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. That's William Tyndale. And then again, in him we live and move and have our being. That's William Tyndale. And then again, that other beautiful sentence. For here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. And also, strangely enough, the version of the Lord's Prayer that we use. Not the one that we find in our authorised version, or in any succeeding version, but the version that we use in which we say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them the trespass against us. That is William Tyndale's version, not the authorised version of the Bible. So we owe a tremendous amount to William Tyndale, who, with his own blood, actually paid the price for us to have the Bible in English. I have often wondered why it is that the Bible in other nations was never sealed with blood, as the English Bible was. And I have come to the conclusion that the English Bible in Satan's mind was far more important than some of the other languages. He knew it was going to become the basis for much missionary translation and in fact was going to spread over a very large part of the world. The next great date in the story of the English Bible is in 1535, what we call the Coverdale Bible. This was the first printed edition of the entire Bible in English. It was made by a man called Miles Coverdale, a companion and helper of Tyndale. And it was made from German and Latin. 
Why? Well, Miles Coverdale, in fact, was not a Greek and Hebrew scholar. So he quite honestly and sincerely pointed that fact out and made a translation from the Latin and from the um, German uh, translations in the light of Tyndale's existing uh, manuscripts and Luther and Zwingli and others. What was vastly important with the Coverdale Bible was the simple fact that Henry VIII relented and gave his royal permission. Tyndale probably never knew when he died that in fact an English Bible was circulating in these islands. And when he prayed that God would open the King of England's eyes before he had called, God had already started to answer. This was the first version when the, uh, in which the apocryphal books were separated from the canonical books and put on their own. The next great date in the English Bible is 1937, two years later. We call it the Matthews Bible. Matthew's Bible. This was the work of John Rogers, a companion and helper of Tyndale. You see, they're all associated together. In fact, both Coverdale and Rogers had to flee the country and for a while lived and helped Tyndale in his work on the translation of the Bible. These godly men. Um, he assumed the name of Thomas Matthew for political expediency. Uh, it was not wise for him to use the name John Rogers. The book, the, his edition would never have probably been allowed and may not have been, it may have roused a lot of opposition, knowing that he was a great friend of Tyndale. So he assumed the scriptural names of Thomas Matthew, and the book was a riotous success, even in high quarters. It was a careful revision based on both Tyndale and Coverdale's translations, going back to the two previous ones. Um, it was, in fact, in, in, in uh, a lot of uh, its parts, it was Tyndale and Coverdale untouched. It's generally considered to be a very great improvement on both the preceding versions. This Bible was allowed by royal authority to be bought and read within the realm. Now, that's different for just permission, that it might be uh, translated into English and that the church officials might read it uh, and others uh, who are educated. This was the first Bible allowed to be bought and read within the whole realm uh, and um, it's amazing fact to realize that within one year of Tyndale's death, his prayer had already been answered, and two English versions of the entire Bible were circulating in Britain. It's an amazing fact, isn't it? John Rogers was finally burnt at the stake in 1555, in the reign of Queen Mary. He had 11 children, and it is said that all 11, including one babe in arms, went to watch him die at the stake. The, the story is told of him, not only of his wonderful answers to Bishop Bonner, who again we shall not discover in heaven, um, 
his wonderful answers are recorded in Fox's Book of Martyrs and, and other histories. But perhaps the most remarkable story told from them all is when the jailer's wife went to uh, fetch him at Newgate, the prison at Newgate, the day before he was to die, uh, the, the morning that he was to die, and found him soundly asleep as a little child. Uh, all the way down, he embarrassed the uh, um, uh, church officials and others by singing psalms uh, right the way until finally he died. Uh, at the stake. Both Tyndale's version and Matthew's version had very controversial notes uh, in the margin. Uh, and um, it is, I'm sure, um, no wonder when you see and uh, read some of these notes, uh, it's no small wonder that the reaction uh, was so violent against them. For instance, uh, in Exodus 32, verse 35, um, we read, And the Lord plagued the people because they made the calf which Aaron made. Uh, in the margin of these Bibles was this note, The Pope's bull slayeth more people than ever did Aaron's calf. And then, <laughs> Leviticus 21 and um, verse 5, They shall not make baldness upon their head, neither shall they shave off the corner of their beard, nor make any cuttings in their flesh. The note in these Bibles, in the margin, was this, Of heathen priests, then, our prelates, or bishops, took example of their bald pates. <laughs> so, I mean, those are only two examples of why such very great reaction was aroused uh, against uh, these dear men who in faithfulness really did stand out. The next milestone in the story of the English Bible is 1539 and it is a very great milestone. We call it the Great Bible. The Great Bible. It's called the Great Bible not because it was uh, in fact intrinsically greater than the others but simply because of its size. It was one of those huge great Bibles and that was especially um, printed to go in public places, particularly in churches. Now this again was the work of Miles Coverdale. He has a tremendous part to play as you can see uh, in, uh, in the story of the English Bible. It's basically a revision of the Matthews Bible. Basically a revision of, uh, of Matthews uh, Bible. Archbishop Cranmer very kindly wrote a preface for this uh, Bible for the 1540 edition of it and in 1541 no doubt due partly to his influence by royal proclamation for the first time a copy of the Bible in English was placed by law in every parish church in the realm of England. Now this was tremendous so we've come step by step First, per royal permission. Secondly, people were allowed to buy and to read. Thirdly, by law, it was placed in every parish church. In fact, they ran out of Bibles. Um, they couldn't get enough to put in the parish churches and had to print edition after edition. In fact, there is also evidence that the common folk enjoyed the Bible much more uh, and found it much more interesting than the vicar. 
for there was a royal proclamation made that people were not to read aloud the Bible in English during the service. <laughs> and neither were they to discuss it. What was happening was so simple. People who were sick to death of both their parsons and vicars, uh, they couldn't understand anything that they said. Most of them were educated people. They hardly ever really bothered to try and speak in a way that the people could understand. Uh, the people were so tired of them, they were much more interested in the service to go and gather around where the Bible had been chained to its lectern, and someone who was literate read it out, and they all discussed it and asked questions, much to the embarrassment of the vicar, the choir, and no doubt the verger. Um, anyway, by royal proclamation, uh, uh, people were told they were not allowed to uh, disturb uh, church services by reading the Bible <laughs> or discussing it in English. It was from this version, the, the Great Bible, that we have now today the prayer book version of the psalm, which differ, if any of you have ever noticed it, especially you with state church backgrounds, have you ever noticed that the, the prayer book uh, Psalter differs from our authorised version of the psalm? Well, that's because it is, in fact, the um, great Bible version of Miles Coverdale. It was altered just a little. In spite of the fact of some very quaint expressions in the great Bible, Coverdale has influenced the authorised version very, very greatly indeed. For instance, these are some of the, of the scriptures that have come to us from Coverdale. He was a master of rhythm. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. That's uh, Coverdale's version. Uh, it's Isaiah 55, verse 6. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 73, verse 26. That's Miles Coverdale. Beautiful rhythm uh, in his uh, translation. Some of the quainter expressions, uh, which never passed into the authorised version, I'm sure we can be glad, are uh, these. Well, I've only got one or two here. Uh, and there is no, you know the phrase in Jeremiah, the, uh, chapter 8, verse 22, uh, is there no balm in Gilead? Coverdale translated, is there no more treacle? at Gilead <laughs> and then in um, in Psalm 91 and uh, verse um, and verse uh, 5 where in our version our authorised version we read this thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night um, Coverdale translated this Thou shalt not need to be afraid for any bugs by night. <laughs> I'm sure a version that could well be used in the East today. Uh, actually, the word bugs then meant something quite different to what it does today. Uh, also again, we have um, Psalm 45, verse 5, which in fact we still have in our prayer book version of the Psalms. Good luck have thou with thine honour. And again in Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 7, He shall bring up the first stone, so that men shall cry unto him, Good luck, good luck. Uh, instead of, they shall cry, Grace, grace unto it. You may well be glad 
that these quaint expressions have not come into our authorised version. Um, he also used um, the little uh, sort of exclamation that you get a lot in Shakespeare, tush. Uh, he used it a lot. In fact, uh, Professor Booth says that he put it in so many places where there was absolutely no reason at all to put it. He says the devil saying to Eve, tush, you foul <laughs> And uh, it uh, uh, comes again and again, and so free was his. But you can see straight away it was the language of the people. And, uh, and it meant something to them. It doesn't mean anything to us, it's quaint to us, but to the people of his day, it meant a lot. The next milestone is the Geneva Bible of 1560. This is uh, another great advance in the history of the English Bible. It is often called the Breaches Bible. I suppose you've all heard that. Uh, I thought I'd better mention it to you, lest uh, others mention it to me afterwards, from uh, an unfortunate uh, rendering in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7, where it says they sewed fig leaves together and made them uh, aprons. Uh, in this version, they said they sewed fig leaves together and made them breeches, which, <laughs> for some unaccountable reason, amused our forebears no end. Uh, they therefore called... <laughs> the Geneva Bible, the Breaches Bible. <laughs> the Geneva New Testament was published in the reign of Queen Mary, the complete Bible in 1560. It was a revision of the Great Bible and Tyndale's New Testament. So you can see all these versions are really, they go back on each other. They, uh, they draw upon what precedes. This was, in fact, a revision of the Great Bible and William Tyndale's New Testament. <clears throat> uh, Coverdale, again, Miles Coverdale, this time he'd had to flee the country, and he was in Geneva, where John Knox was, and where a man called William Whittingham was, and where, of course, Calvin, and a number of other great, of the great reformers were gathered. Uh, Geneva, uh, as, it had be, as it was then and has been all through the centuries, was a haven of refuge for believers. And uh, these, it was so, it so happened under the sovereign oversight of God that some of the greatest brains amongst the reformers were gathered uh, in, and exiled really, in Geneva. Coverdale was one of them. And he with others uh, who had sought refuge here in Geneva edited this version, added marginal notes, and for the first time, words inserted to complete the sense of the original in English were put in italics, so that people reading might know this is not in the original, but it was inserted in order that we might uh, understand uh, the meaning. It was the first English Bible printed with verse divisions and chapter divisions together. And it was the first English Bible printed in what we call Roman type. Uh, that is the type that we're all used to today. It was the first step forward in that way. It was destined to become the most popular of all English versions to date. In fact, it became the household Bible of all English-speaking Protestants. 
the Christians of this era loved the Geneva Bible. It was because, not only because it was scholarly, because it was accurate, because it was in beautiful English, but they loved the marginal notes. Um, these notes were often highly controversial. Uh, they were anti-papist, for instance, on Revelation 11.7, uh, which reads, uh, the text reads the, like this. They weren't so violent in some ways as the earlier ones, for which we can be thankful. Revelation 11 and uh, verse uh, 7. And when they shall have finished their testament, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, shall overcome them and kill them. The note they put in the margin here was, this is the Pope, which hath his power out of hell and cometh thence. Uh, so, it was a rather direct note, I must say. Uh, it was beloved by all English-speaking Protestants for its directness and frankness. Um, it was also anti-episcopal. It never translated uh, um, the Greek by the word bishop, but always elder. And uh, in many ways, it was, it was Presbyterian in character, as indeed were all the great Reformed churches at that time, of Switzerland, of France, of Scotland, and a very large section in this country, and of course of the lowlands in, in Holland. Uh, it was also highly Calvinistic. So these notes, highly Calvinistic, anti-bishop, anti-pope, uh, made this version one of the most loved versions uh, 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 in English. Uh, nevertheless, I think that even some of these notes were better than some that appeared before and since. Um, I was horrified to see in the Barclay version of 1959 a dreadful note next to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 12 where Adam says to the Lord, she bade me to eat and I did eat. And there in the margin of a modern version is this note. Passing the buck is as old as humanity and shows no repentance. So you can understand that sometimes such notes do are a bit disconcerting when you find them in the Bible. That's why the authorised version translators decided to get rid of all such notes altogether, and I think with value. There is another little uh, note I should like to read to you so that you just understand. I've, I've quoted some anti-papal ones, and... Um, uh, one that I think is rather crude. This, I think, is the choice of all notes <coughs> in the Bible. This was in a Bible called Bishop Beck's Bible, which appeared, in fact, just before the Geneva Bible in 1551, but never made very great impression upon the English Bible. Perhaps it was just as well. Its notes, uh, written by this Bishop Beck, were printed in exactly the same uh, uh, type as the text and uh, often in with the, about so near it that it almost became part of it. This is his note on 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, where men are exhorted to live with their wives according to knowledge. He dwelleth, says he in his note, said the, this bishop, he dwelleth with his wife according to knowledge, that taketh her as a necessary helper, 
and not as a bond servant or a bond slave. And if she be not obedient and helpful unto him, endeavoureth to beat the fear of God into her head, that thereby she may be compelled to learn her duty and do it. <laughs> now you can understand perhaps why uh, the authorised version translators decided to get rid of all such notes. <laughs> and the next, um, the next uh, milestone, advance if you like, in the history of the English Bible is in 1568, and we call it the Bishop's Bible. It was never very popular, although officially it was made the official version for this country. Um, it, was, it was the generally anti-Bishop trend of the Geneva Bible and its rather controversial marginal notes that led to this version. Um, it was produced by Anglican bishops and was a revision of the Great Bible. They were highly worried about the popularity of the Geneva Bible, and no wonder. Um, it uh, continued in use for some 40 years, although the Geneva Bible was the most popular, being almost universally read in private. So in spite of the fact that the bishops did their best to wipe out the Geneva Bible, it, it, only, it was read in the homes, although the bishop's Bible was read in church. The next uh, um, version you ought to look at is in fact, in one sense, not in direct... Um, uh, in not in a direct line, in one way, of the English Bible. It is the Douay version uh, of the Bible of 1609. In fact, if we could only move all this uh, around, uh, it really stems from there, because it is a translation of the Latin Vulgate and not of the Greek and Hebrew original. Nevertheless, it was rather important. It was, as I think most of you know, um, the official, it was the official Roman Catholic version of the Bible in English, brought out as its preface boldly states, not because it was felt that it was necessary for the people to read the Bible in their own language, in fact it points out that it thinks it's rather harmful, but to counteract the other English versions which were making such headway uh, amongst the people. It was a translation, as I've said, of the Latin Vulgate, but it was um, done in the light of the Greek and Hebrew originals. I don't want to be amusing or facetious, but I must say this, that it was in fact a very good thing for the Protestant cause that the Douay version was so unreadable. Um, it could have caused a counter-reformation. Uh, if it had really been in readable English. But it was so Latinized that it never became popular. In fact, in many, in many cases, it's quite hard reading the Douay version. Um, some of the Latinisms are simply amazing. I'll give you a few samples. For instance, how would you like this? Psalm 23, verse 5. My cup runneth over, anointeth my head with oil, my cup runneth over. This is the Douay version of 1609. My inebriating chalice, has, how goodly is it. <laughs> my inebriating chalice, how goodly is it. 
Colossians chapter 2 verse 7 where we are uh, told rooted and built up in him we read in this version rooted and super edified <laughs> in him they were very fond of the word super by the way um, and then Matthew 6 and verse 11 how would you like this for the Lord's prayer give us this day our super substantial bread <laughs> give us this day our super substantial bread um, it referred, for instance, to our Lord, where he speaks of himself as the good shepherd, as the good pastor. Because Latin, pastor, is literally shepherd. It was so Latinized that it was just quite, quite unbelievable. And I say, it was a good thing for the Protestant cause that it was so unreadable. For people just found it one of the most highly amusing versions. Uh, many of the ordinary common people found it a highly amusing version. And uh, it seemed that, as they said in their preface, they didn't, want, they didn't feel really that it was so good for the people to read it. They had certainly produced a version that wasn't easy for the people to read. Its notes, as one would expect, were violently pro-Roman Catholic. Well, that's not to be uh, grumbled about, because uh, the Geneva Bible and Tyndale's Bible and Matthew's Bible were, in fact, violently pro-Protestant. So we can't grumble about that. Nevertheless, in fact, and this is a remarkable thing, the Douay version has had influence on the authorised version. Do you know that we get our word grace from the Douay version? And we also get the word advent from the Douay <coughs> version in our uh, Bible. And evangelize is another word that comes from the Douay version. These were not used before so much. So finally we come to um, the authorised version of 1611, where we shall finish this evening. In 1604, at Hampton Court, not very far from here, at a conference over which King James I presided, John Reynolds, Dr John Reynolds, um, a, a leader of the Puritan side, in the Church of England, suggested that a new uniform translation of the Bible be made um, to uh, cut out uh, all these other versions which by then were existing alongside of one another. It did not meet with the approval of the majority. In fact, some of the highest ecclesiastics uh, were quite against it. But what did matter? It met with the approval of the king. Uh, this resulted in him appointing 54 men of learning and piety, of which 47 actually undertook the work in the end, to revise the existing translations of the English Bible. It was not really a translation, um, but a revision. And there is, in fact, a very interesting um, part uh, in, uh, if I can just find it, in the preface. You very rarely find the preface now in the authorised version of the Bible. I've looked through all mine, I can't find it. Uh, but uh, this is what the translators, the 47 translators, the authorised version, put in their preface, which gives us the key to their version. Truly, good Christian reader, we never thought from the beginning that we should need to make a new translation, nor yet to make of a bad one a good one, but 
to make a good one better, or out of many good ones, one principal good one, not justly to be accepted against. That has been our endeavour, that our mark. To that purpose there were many chosen that were greater in other men's eyes than in their own, and that sought the truth rather than their own praise. And in what sort did these assemble? In the trust of their own knowledge, or of their sharpness of wit, or deepness of judgment, as it were, in an arm of flesh, at no hand. They trusted in him that hath the key of David, opening, and no man shutting. They prayed to the Lord, the Father of our Lord, to the effect that St. Augustine did. Oh, let thy scriptures be my pure delight. Let me not be deceived in them, neither let me deceive by them. In this confidence and with this devotion did they assemble together, not too many, lest one should trouble another, and yet many, lest many things haply might escape them. Well, as much else there, you can read it all if you wish. Um, but it's enough, I think, for you to realise that their objective was to bring all the preceding translations and out of them, as it were, in the light of the original Greek and Hebrew, to now make one principal one of many good ones. <clears throat> it, it is in fact, it, it is in fact, uh, it was in fact the uh, bishop's Bible that was their immediate basis. And then behind that, uh, they had the Geneva Bible, the Great Bible, and Matthew's Bible, and even Wycliffe's version was before them. And to these they referred to and gave very careful consideration in their translation. Thus, the work of Wycliffe, of Tyndale, and Coverdale was before them. It has been estimated that 60% of the authorised version text is taken from the earlier versions. The Genevan Bible and Tyndale's New Testament being the two principal sources. It resulted in a version which retained all the best qualities of uh, these preceding versions and yet somehow has produced a superlative style of its own. Thus came into being the version which was by its intrinsic merit to supersede all previous versions of the English Bible and to become the greatest single influence in the spiritual life of God's English-speaking people. When I was studying this afternoon, I realised with a shock that not one single, uh, not one single great movement of God's Spirit over the years um, since the authorised since the authorised version did not use the authorised version in the English-speaking world, except possibly the Pentecostal movement, which may have used the revised version. I don't think it has, in fact, but it may have done. But every other uh, movement of God's Spirit, the, the, the Quaker, the Puritan, Quaker, and then the Wesleyan, the Brethren, have used uh, the authorised version of the Bible. This was the Bible they loved. This was the Bible 
through whom they heard God speaking. It was in this book, in this version, uh, that they began to have their eyes opened to see the Lord. Uh, from even the purely secular angle, it was destined to become the greatest single factor in English literature. And you know, to me that is in some ways thrilling. For when God does anything, he does it perfectly. And it seems that this book is not, uh, has not only been able to contain uh, the, the oracles of God uh, and, and speak to us livingly over the centuries, but it has also been in superlative English. It has been called the noblest monument to English prose. And I don't think that there is any doubt, surely, in any one of your minds that it has never been excelled by any version since. For its sheer beauty of style, it stands uh, supreme. It commended itself to all from its beginning. There was a certain amount of controversy at the very beginning, as always, but in the end it commended itself to all because of the absence of any controversial notes and because of the absence of peculiarities. <laughs> it is in fact quite remarkable. I haven't uh, just quoted peculiarities, quaint peculiarities, just for a laugh, but because I want you to see that those peculiarities could have passed over to the authorised version quite easily. But in the most remarkable way, even now, in the mid-twentieth century, there are very few quaint peculiarities in the authorised version. There are, of course, one or two. Um, the one I love best is in Galatians 1 and verse 11, where it reads, And I certify you, brethren, um, I can't think of anything funnier. I heard um, uh, a vicar, uh, a cure, yes, a vicar, the other evening, reading solemnly uh, from this, I certify you, brethren. Well, of course, I certify you, brethren, it meant something quite different then to what it does now. It only means one thing now, uh, in, in that way. And that is a peculiarity. As a lad, I always used to love that other one about Paul coming to the three taverns and taking courage. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, apart from those two peculiarities in the authorised version, unless you know of others, um, I must say that the authorised version is, is amazingly free from such quaint uh, peculiarities. It's quite remarkable. And uh, thus it became, in God's hands, the version... Uh, that has become in many ways the foundation of all that God has done in these islands. Now, of course, next week we shall, we shall talk about the revised version and we shall talk about all these new modern versions that have come since uh, the authorised version. We shall ask ourselves why are the need for modern versions and I think we shall begin to see when I said, of course, peculiarities, I didn't mean that some words have not become obsolete or that there are not some incorrect translations in the authorised version, but what I mean is that it's not a laughable version. 
uh, it's still d absolutely dignified and it's still truly the word of God uh, in, in a style that somehow one feels is befitting. Well, I thought uh, before we finished this evening, we are finished now, I'd end by reading to you what I think myself to be um, a few selections from this version, which I think will never be beaten. First of all, of course, Psalm 23. I, I noticed that even in the revised version and the American Standard Version, they have wisely left it, because it is absolutely perfect. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Uh, you know, that can't be beaten. It can't be beaten. For absolute simplicity uh, and, uh, and rhythm. And then again another random selection 43 Isaiah 43 verse 1 different kind of translation but it's still I think a perfect example of the I was going to say unbeatableness of the authorised version in some of its parts anyway even to today but now Thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Saviour. And then again, Luke, Dean. Although I know that the modern version, both the New English Bible and the version, um, or Philip's version, uh, are very racy and bring home the story, I don't think this uh, rendering of the story will ever be beaten uh, for simplicity and for, I think, effect in many ways. Verse 11. And he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together 
and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat, and be merry. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found. And they began to be merry. And then, Romans 8, Romans 8, 31, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And lastly, in chapter 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and his ways past finding out! For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counsellor? 
or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. It was that version, substantially, that Tyndale laid down his life to give us, and John Rodley and others suffered very great privation and persecution. And I sometimes wonder whether we, in all the luxury of freedom that is ours today, appreciate how this book has come into our hands. Shall we pray?